of interesting peoples brilliant guest today tell us about nick kendall um so nick came into my world about two years ago um he's been an inspiring character for me personally and professionally he is a bit of an advertising and marketing guru he is a strategist and a bit of a savant around the world of branding uh he has written books and he has been at the forefront of a big global advertising agency called BBH. A monstrous intellect. He's scarily intelligent as well. <laughs> so I, I think he definitely classifies as an interesting people. Excellent segue. Here we go. Nick, do you want to speak briefly about your story and kind of where you came from, where you are today, and what it is that you do? Um, hi. Uh, I am Nick Kendall. Uh, I came from uh, reading English, actually. Uh, I read English at university, and uh, I wanted to do publishing. Book publishing? Book publishing, yeah. I I was very determined to discover the next James Joyce, uh, which is my favourite. Ulysses is my desert island book kind of thing. And um, I took... Uh, just three interviews at uh, university, one in air freight, because, <laughs> well, my brother my brother actually works in air freight, so I shouldn't, we shouldn't snigger. People um, always need stuff freighted by air. They always need stuff, but uh, I used to, he used to ask me to take envelopes to New York uh, as a courier. He used to have to accompany, uh, and I thought that was the most glamorous thing in the world, <laughs> and I ended up in, that's where I first discovered cockroaches actually um new york that is <laughs> so i took uh, one interview with dhl one interview with a book publisher which is the one i really wanted and one interview with advertising and uh, uh the other two didn't give me the job i, I think i realized air freight was not quite the glamorous thing <laughs> I'd re- i thought it might be and i realized it might have something slightly more to do with logistics and project management which is not what i am uh the Publishing, I think I just managed to spot that you might just get given the chance to find James Joyce 2 in <laughs> about 20 years or something, having read books uh, for typos and things. I think there was some moment in the interview when I suddenly realised it wasn't quite the world I thought it was, and it was certainly very badly paid. So, so Nick, presumably this is the mid-1980s. Or this there is 81. 81. Uh, and, then, and then one interview with advertising, and that's how I got into advertising. I had no knowledge of advertising. I had no desire. Uh, I did not have a burning passion for it then. And uh, it was pure happenstance. And long may it rule. <laughs> and what was advertising in the early 1980s? What kind of a world well, was I, it? Well, as I say, in a way, I, I didn't really know uh, 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 advertising for me in my first job was running up and down stairs getting Dixon's photographic ads made. Uh, my first ad was actually, uh, I still have it somewhere in the garage, a metal plate ad uh, for a charity magazine for Stanley Combs who ran Dixon's. So I was allowed to do the charity work as my first. And then after that it was essentially running up and down uh, telling people the price had changed or telling them to make the picture of the very bad picture of the TV bigger <laughs> and yeah. people arguing with you and saying it's big enough and me running down to client and going, the creative says it's big enough. And it was a kind of precursor of all those stupid debates about whether the logo was big enough or not, mm-hmm. uh, which was still played out. It's still this funny dancing game of client... Agency. It's like they've read the script somewhere and they repeat it. But um, so it was was nothing. I I didn't know. I mean, my my awakening 
I mean, I understood I liked it quite quickly because I, it, I, I joke about that, but I quite like, I think it was the energy, just that sense of purpose and running and doing. In, in a way, I quite like that vitality and the people were all funny and everything and uh, they were intelligent even though they were doing a non-intelligent thing and uh, and I quite like that. So I got hooked quite quickly on the, on the adrenaline of it. I, I think... I worked out what I wanted two or three years later. And I, I find that interesting for, for today, people joining. You, you have to have a degree in advertising or something to, to join the business, and I do worry about that. You, you came to advertising with a degree, but was that not typical at that time? Uh, yes, you... it was typical. The, 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 the history of advertising is it, it, it welcomes all, a bit like uh, Ellis Island. It, it it used to welcome all. That's why it was, a, it was an extremely democratic, accessible business in a funny kind of way. It's the city and advertising. So, mm. so uh, certainly creators, when I joined the business, to Jack's question, a lot were East End boys. And they'd yeah. chosen, you know, it was boxing, city or advertising. And they, some chose advertising because they were creative. Mm. And I, I think that's one of the things that I think is... That grit and knowledge and nous all combined together, I think, was a special thing of eighties mm-hmm. advertising and the people at the top. Then people who joined it, um, there was still that desire for degrees, but uh, for account handling and for and I joined as an account handler in those days, and that was classic. Let's put East End boy with posh posh bloke. And uh, or intelligent bloke, and uh, and that roughly was advertising yeah, yeah, in those days. Yeah. And literally, you could see the the three or the or the, those groups were made up of that three three types: the gentleman, yeah. project manager, the clever bloke who who tried to make it uh, intelligent, and then somebody with a gift. Um, so. Without wishing to state yours, which one were you, and what did well, you think you I, I, I started. I thought I, uh, I was, as I say, I knew nothing, so I, <clears throat> I didn't know any of the disciplines. I didn't know how advertising was put together, etc., etc. And it took me six months to realise Dixon's photographic was not really advertising. It was a kind of jigsaw puzzle, uh, and. Uh, so I left quite quickly my first agency and went to a place called Sharps. Uh, went to a place, sorry, called Fletcher Shelton Delaney, the first agency with Sharps. And um, there, again, I ran around a lot and I tried to do invoices and tried to make things happen on time and, you know, tried to persuade clients this was right or that was right, which is a kind of lot of the person who who is called the account handler who manages the process and the whole project, as it were. Uh, during that time, in about two years after that, I met my first planner. And the planner is essentially the strategist, the person who answers the questions, what are you trying to achieve, who with, and how do we think we're going to do it. And that's called planning in the business of advertising. And I switched over to that soon after, soon after that. And I've been a planner essentially my career, I introduced myself as a planner mm-hmm. when I introduced myself. And I suppose a, a, a lay audience might think, how has somebody so intellectual and cerebral stimulated and satisfied themselves over 30 years yeah. in essentially the business of question. selling stuff? And I, I'm fascinated in, I, sp- I suppose, whenever I speak to you about branding and advertising, there's happily a sense underneath the surface that you're actually doing something that, yes, it can be quite simple, but also has meaning and profundity. Uh, it is immensely profound and immensely stupid at the same time. That's one of the contradictions. And in a way, that's, that's one of the energies in the business. You, you know, you, you can be talking and giggling about the stupidest of debates. You know, I remember sitting in a meeting, I was... Uh, Later in my career, I, I did it globally, as it were, and I went to an offer. I, I worked for BBH. So uh, to finish that, I did another three or four years at Fletcher's, and then I joined BBH, and that's when I truly understood advertising. And I went to BBH, which is Bob Burgle Hegarty, because I'd seen Levi's Laundrette. And that, for me, 
was the, the advertising I wanted to make. So by, by about three, four years in, I kind of had a sense of now that that's not James Joyce <laughs> to, to your point, <laughs> but it is a perfect little thing. And I would like to make stories like that. So, so that's when I went to BBH and roughly I spent my career, at BB, not roughly, I did spend my career 28 years at BBH and I, at the end I was global, but to finish Jack's point, um, you know, I sat in a meeting, we did chopper chops in Singapore, and the way we, I used to like to review when I went around the different offices, just say, what questions do you want to ask me, as opposed to demanding that they tell me things. And I remember it's just a brilliant... And we, we had uh, a little puppet who uh, sucked chopper chops, uh, was the idea. Uh, and it was based around that idea of, you know, lollipops and Kojak and, you know, kind of being clever but sucking a lollipop. And and, and this character was a flat-headed little puppet and he sucked a lollipop all the time. And people said, you know, we've done a, we've done a couple of iterations of this, but we're worrying it's getting... Should uh, Chuck, he was called... Our question for you as Global Strategic Planning Director is, Nick, do you think Chuck should speak? <laughs> Which yeah. is a genius question. <laughs> and my instinctive, you know, years, 10,000 hours of experience was no. No, Chuck can never speak because he'll lose his profundity as soon as you try to give him something to say. Great gurus don't speak. They just kind of suck their lollipop and let you speak. And um, now that is an absurd question, obviously. Mm -hmm. And it's about uh, why is it fascinating? Because it it's about the mechanics of an idea. How, what is an idea? The precise nature of an idea mm -hmm. and how it works. And in that sense, as I say, I, I, you know, the precise. If you read Ulysses, I'll, I'll keep using Ulysses to make it interesting. I mean, God is a shout in the street is one of the great, great lines in Ulysses. It's a story of Leopold Bloom going around Dublin for a day. So it's an entirely ordinary day in the life of. And the first, one of the first books to describe the day in the life of somebody, an ordinary person, as epic, hence the name mm. Ulysses. But he's going around Dublin and around the pubs rather than around islands and facing one-eyed you know, monsters and things, though, though it riffs off that and it is kind of analogous. 20th. So the first book to try and do that, and it finishes rather famously with uh, Dora, his wife, sitting on uh, the loo or the chamber pot and waiting for him to come home, which is, a, again, a riff off the original mm -hmm. Ulysses. And, uh, and again, that's cataclysmic that's postmodern that is banned substance at the time it is, mm. it's easy to forget how radical mm. that was it is such a beautifully crafted idea it's such a precise idea about the day in the life of and what happens and all the energy comes mm. from playing off that Ulysses epic journey around Dublin and that's what I mean I suppose that's what on one level kept me interested right yeah. at the centre of it all is not the intellectual pursuit necessarily. It is the it's the beauty of the precision of ideas, and advertising is one of the most precise forms of ideas you can get. I would argue. I mean, I, I think pop songs are. I think cartoons are extraordinary things. I like haikus. They are. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever I work with you, I've been struck by your relentlessness in that pursuit of. The, the most distilled, <laughs> concentrated form of an idea and the degree of precision around an idea and within that, I suppose, the precision of what, like, a brand idea is. What is it that... How do you get to the nub of that? Because lots of people, myself included, you know, any person in the street probably thinks that they have got good ideas somewhere, right? Is it a learned skill or is it... Is it, uh, it it's a bit of both, uh, you know, so... Um, in, in a way, reading English for three years, book a week kind of thing, and trying to understand what is at the centre of a book, 
you know, what is that about from your perspective? I suppose it was already a training, if I, if I look back on it. Then you have 20-odd years of, you know, so when someone asks me, does Chuck, should Chuck uh, speak? And I can answer in a second, as it were. I suppose that's, as I say, years and years of looking at ideas in reviews. You know, if you're doing two or three reviews a week looking at ideas, you learn a skill that precisely tries to understand what the idea the creative team has shown you, the, uh, the process has shown you. How to get to one of those ideas is a different question. So I'm describing a critic, in essence. So I call myself a strategist, but one of the bits of the job is to be a critic, and a critic's job is to go, that's why that is brilliant, and to land on the precise nature of that and try and build on that and help the creative team, therefore. Because lots of times, the funny thing is, creative teams sometimes don't know when they've struck gold. Yeah. You know what I mean? It presume, yeah. so, we presume yeah. they know because our pictures are of the yeah. Picassos, the, the famous ones, who absolutely know yeah. what their idea is. But oftentimes, you're in the midst of things, you're, trying, you're running around, you're young, you're not as expert. You're helping people see what they've got yeah. and then helping build on, on that. And, mm -hmm. and, and so you learn that skill. How to have an idea, God knows. I think uh, the more over 28 years, uh, as I say, God is a shout in the street. Uh, I, I genuinely think you are gifted. And I've met a lot of creatives, and I've been in a lot of creative reviews, and I've met a lot of people who say they're creative. I'm not totally sure every time. Uh, I think I do reserve a special level of heaven <laughs> to the 10% of the people who say that who actually truly are. Well, I think one of the sadnesses of life is recognising whether you are or whether you're a critic. And I... Uh, I sometimes wonder whether I prematurely decided I was a critic because I kind of decided that quite early. I wanted to write, but then I decided quite early I, I wasn't good enough to write because I love books. And, um, and I think I was right, probably, but I do regret because the only other thing that defines people who can do that other than they're touched by God is they do it. And they try. And by doing it, they learn whether they can and they're brave enough to do it. And I've always had a respect for that. And because I knew I'd slightly bottled it quite early. And sometimes now I think, no, uh, I, I, I'm slightly older, as it were. So I get to, you must do the things you bottled first time round and, and try. So I might write still, but I... I think people who do it is one way of defining how do you it get to like, an idea. <laughs> it seems like reading vociferously and writing are kind of common traits amongst all sorts of high achievers. And it seems mm. like a, a sort of a breeding ground, I suppose, maybe for figuring out your own mind to, to a degree, yeah. understanding I, ideas. I, I like think so. one of the reasons, keep to Jack's question, to try and follow a thread, sorry, I know, I know yeah, I'm yeah. waffling, but... One of the other things that has satisfied me over those years is advertising is a, is a is an eclectic business. Uh, literally, you have twenty cl odd clients, as it were, in different markets, and therefore you have twenty different areas of exploration. And behind that, constantly to feed your understanding of those things, you, you are essentially hoovering up. Uh, you, you should have antennae for stuff that's going on mm -hmm. so that you can either feed that creative process or recognise it when you see it. So you're trying to keep tabs of how the world is in which your stupid little 60-second ad is going to land. So you need to understand the context of what you're doing. So I think it, it, it feeds curiosity. It rewards people who are curious uh, kind of thing. You know, John Hegarty, who I work with, I think still, at, uh, he's slightly older than me, is endlessly curious and he will constantly surprise me with a reference. He'll go, I quite like such a, you know, or, and I'll go, how the f 
you know that you're supposed to be old yeah <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. stop stop being open stop being inquiring stop being yeah. stimulated by the world you know and he, he can't it's that's his brain and i think advertising satisfied me for that reason yeah. and then right at the center of it as well uh the reason i read books with such hunger when i was a kid is i wanted to understand people and I, I didn't really read books for the sake of the beauty of the prose or things in, in a way i just it was it was it, it was the motives it was the people trying to understand and uh i think at the center of advertising and brands and things is is a very simple question which is why do people do what they do you know and you can answer that question we my wife and i were talking about it last night in the context of somebody who had disappointed us in a very bizarre way and uh which is where you get to when you're 50 odd and people disappoint you <laughs> and why do people do what they do mm -hmm. why they are strange creatures people aren't they and they <coughs> their motives are weird and dislocated and contrary and emotional and yeah. and so that constant attempt to understand why people do things in the case of brands and advertising why do they choose one thing versus another yeah. is i think the central fascination yeah. of, of advertising so building a picture of i suppose the specific traits attributes and skills that nick has brought to this world over the last 20 or 30 years. And it feels like we've got a picture of, of a critic, a picture of somebody attempting to be a psychologist in some way. There's, there's, mm -hmm. There is psychology. And there's this idea of almost being like the nervous system to a business, the idea of the antennae. Mm. And I sometimes say, I'm going to say, what do I do for a living? I say, my team, we, we are sensitive for a living. And if you stop being sensitive in your consumption, active or passive, of the material of the world around you, I think we, we stop being useful. I think it's a fascinating discipline. Nick, as, as I, you know, I, I think that the, the, the other thing, and it might, it might be interesting to compare and contrast yeah. your product versus mine. Yeah. Um, because I've worked in advertising, so as I say, it, the balance, I, I think, it, I love that phrase, sensitive for a living, I think that's absolutely true. John used to say, Nick, your job is to be my antennae, which is the same concept. And I, I think the other job is to deliver an idea, help deliver an idea. And so John's book, sorry if I talk about John, but he's been part of, um, he's part of what I'm doing now. Um, is turning intelligence into magic. And sometimes he talks very sweetly about Nixie intelligence. And, mm -hmm. But uh, John Bartle was my original, as it were, planning mentor at BBH. And in a way, I owe the foundation of everything to John. And, and his phrase I always remember and pass on to people was, I don't want to be famous for planning. I don't want BBH to be famous for planning. I want BBH to be flame, famous for ideas. And I've always had that in mind, that the other core is the life of ideas. Mm. So, you, so you can be sensitive to culture, you can be sensitive to people and empathise with how funny mm -hmm. they are and strange and what drives them. You can be sensitive to a client in a meeting and what they're trying to achieve. You know, you, you can have that empathy and sensitivity. But I think you are centrally involved in the life of ideas. And that is a real... So under, I, I sometimes say to planners, don't worry about reading psychology. Don't re worry about reading books on the culture. Don't, you should be training for the first two or three... And it relates to your question. How, how do you have that ability as a critic? You should be looking at creativity. That's what you should mm -hmm. be training in. Because mm -hmm. that's what you're producing. You're not producing strategies to go on TV. You're producing strategies to 
produce something else to go on to. Because they are in of themselves worthless. You know, it's what, that, what can they that, produce uh, material? You know, is, the, is the idea the sort of unit of measurement of your industry? Uh, yes, it is almost to the point of cliche. It, it is um, the thing we put on a pedestal. It's the thing we hymn about. Things are big ideas or the counter trend is lots of small ideas, <laughs> but they're always at the centre is ideas. And uh, wh- what is that? I suppose it's in a in in our terms, it's in a busy world. How do, how do you engage someone and fascinate them? Okay, so for maybe for a lay person, yeah, give us an example of a really great idea. Uh, well, maybe something contested, yeah, yeah, current or contemporary, perhaps. I think uh, let's do one at the beginning, maybe one at the end. And um, as I say, I joined BBH because I saw Laundrette. And in a funny kind of way over the years, I have talked to people way beyond advertising and they can remember the moment when they saw Laundrette. Absolutely. And it's funny that you go, God, that's weird. You know, Was that JFK a- and Laundrette, what the hell? <laughs> Is that a moment? Is that a line in the, a line in the sand in, in the world of advertising? Uh, well, in the, in the world of advertising, it's a particular moment, and I think it explains why uh, it, it it has a particular resonance. Um, As a consumer, it feels like a moment. Uh, and the reason it's a moment, I think, is John's discovery for the world of advertising, and you'd have to look back and see work before and work after, was the discovery of a mini-film with a soundtrack. No words, no explanation, no persuasion, no... Just a mini-film. And so people will pitch a laundrette, and, of course, you will not be able to remember what it said because it didn't say anything, but they'll remember the track. So he created a mini-film, and then he also used music as the thing that gave meaning to that film or, or, or made it resonate beyond... And, um, and and since now, you, you go, well, yeah, of course ads have music on. But I promise you, I heard it through the grapevine. You know, that was a moment when you heard that first chord, suddenly the advertising world went, ooh, <laughs> that's a different way of doing it. Just as I'm sure when they first saw the, the very famous American called Bill Birnbach, who did Volkswagen ads in America and print work, and... Uh, he did a print ad which showed that, he, you know, he's selling a small, dumpy car in the middle of big car giant America thing. And so how on earth do you sell a German car after the war, which is small and funny shape? And so he rather famously accepted its quirkiness. And so there's a very famous ad which just shows a picture of the Volkswagen, quite small, and it just says a lemon. And then goes on, so it's got you, it's got you, you know. And that was a moment when intelligence and wit could be used to engage you, as opposed to shouting at you or opposed to saying, look how beautiful you'll be. And a kind of use of truth to to involve you. Do you see what I mean? People are suckers for truth. <laughs> but uh, I think in engaging people, you would know in all your conversations, if, you, if your authenticity of engagement, truth, is, is quite important. Was that the beginning of... The... That, that was the beginning of modern advertising after the kind of 50s, 60s, almost, in, in, which is still, you know, things don't get replaced. They just, you just cumulatively have different modes. So there's still happy family pictures and that whole 50s consumer America kind of thing, but and which you saw in Mad Men. But there's a moment when intelligence and wit and a bit of truthfulness and engagement, that's Bill Birnbach. And then John was one of those step changes. Um, now, that that is an idea. What is it? You know, a uh, guy walks into a laundrette, takes his trousers off. Um, so on one level, it's a gag. It's actually a gag. If, if I said that to you in a pub, you'd think I was about to do a punchline. So, on another level, it's a story of a guy who's original. It will be the words and the strategic kind of discussion around it uh, about what we're trying to display as an act of originality. Uh, that act of originality is an emotional 
kind of storytelling. He's the kind of guy who is rooted in a product truth, kind of burn batch truth, about it's the original five-pocket Western gene. And therefore, people who wear the original are original kind of conceit. And then, in a way, all of that doesn't quite describe it, does it? Because it's a moment. It, it's a kind of little... Is that where the magic meets the... It's, it, it, yeah, I think, you know, it's a short story. So, you know, some, somebody once said to me, the best short story, um, I remember somebody illustrating uh, uh, babies uh, for sale, babies' uh, boots never worn. How that's, sad. That's a short story. <laughs> and, you know, in, in a way, I had to like that. So the story is, is something more than an act of originality, there's a chutzpah in it. And and then there's all, you know, again, I'll, I'll use John, sorry, but 80% idea, 80% execution. There's so many layers of execution in that, obviously, in that original Laundrette film. And it was a wholly mythical, almost hyper-real America world, wasn't it? It, it? it was 50s America, but it wasn't. It Was it modern? Or There's... there's there's literally Nick Cayman, of course, you know, I mean, who was a kid on King's Road who was found and just had it, didn't he? He just had it. He lost it, but <laughs> rather sadly, but in that moment in the world, he had the walk on Hutzpah. And, and then there's little moments in the film. People will remember the moments of the woman looking mm. at him as he takes, or the old man looking looking grumpy and so the watching people is a little touch that somebody was that in the script or on the day did somebody go well just lock on those people looking you know and uh, and then the music as i say that that you know chords come on you kind of know yeah. <laughs> nick, nick what one name has been a sort of percussive thread through this conversation yeah. uh, and i'm just conscious that the audience may not know much about this gentleman yeah. could you just tell us a little bit about the john who has been on a number of times forementioned in this in this conversation yeah so uh sorry i'd go back to my story i i spotted bbh through laundrette bbh is bartle bogle Hegarty. uh john bartle who was the planner the, the thinky person, uh, Nigel Bogle, who uh, is quite thinky and clever as well, but he is a brilliant uh, leader of people and situations, uh, and John Hegarty, who was the creative director, as it's known. So he was that is the threesome that, in a way, come together the three forces that come together to make right. something like Laundrette happen. Uh, and John Hegarty is quite well known in the business, obviously. Even beyond, he's one of those few people who, who managed to have a profile slightly beyond. So mm -hmm. he's now Sir John Hegarty, and he's certainly got a profile globally. He would be respected and admired, and even occasionally appears on Desert Island Discs or... Jim will fix yes. it, but we yes. won't. We a transcendent figure. <laughs> we don't mention Jim will fix it anymore. But, um, it, it, it feels um, almost impossible to have a conversation about advertising, branding, and marketing without, of course, reflecting on. I suppose it's. I suppose uh, uh, the phenomenon of Mad Men, which <laughs> seems to propel the idea of the brand and the cult of the brand into people's living rooms over the last half decade. As somebody who's lived through, you know, several eras in this world, mm. how do you reflect on Mad Men? How do you feel when you watch it? Um, well, like everybody, at first I just love the suits and the, you know, and the intrigue of it, the characters and things. I suppose always I was watching it, thinking advertising. And I, as an ad man, you're constantly worried about how are they going to reflect me, as it were, mm. because obviously we're semi-joke figures in the world alongside estate agents and bankers, obviously. And and there might be reason for that. But on the whole, they're kind of false representations. Whenever I've seen work that tries to show how advertising is made, in a way, it gets hold of the moment when somebody asks a question about should, 
Chuck speak. And so, you know, obviously that in isolation can seem entirely Mm. ridiculous and stupid or... Or it has the moments when people are having drunken lunches and and come up with ideas there, or, or just get drunk. And I think that's the same. How the, that's often how the music industry is portrayed. Yeah, well, yeah, and, and it's the nature. People, you know, it's the nature of advertising or brands. People choose how they put your story together. Um, you try and shape it, but so I suppose I was always looking in that, and and I thought it was a beautifully. Uh, and then there was an English uh, critic watching it as well, maybe still. I thought I thought it was beautifully constructed. I mean, and what I've, one of the things I found fascinating about the structure of it was it starts with an era and finishes with an era. Um, so if you remember, people, it started with it's toasted. So mm-hmm. it, it, people used to go, oh, remember those days when everyone smoked? The whole thing is about smoking on one level. And the first episode opens with a bar full of smoke and things. And he's trying to find out how to do Lucky Strike because they're under pressure because the health authorities have got some stupid ideas about the dangers of cigarettes. (laughs) And they're all complaining about it and going, aren't they mad and things like that, you know. But they've got to find an answer about how to advertise lucky strike in the context of potential health claims and lawsuits and and etc etc and he can't do it he can't find he has has, uh, a waiter Um, interestingly if you remember remember, uh, why do you smoke those those? and it's a very interesting subplot in there about the role of black people in America uh, over the decades as well and the first interaction with that person is he asks him as if he's a normal human being and then the white boss comes over the black guy and uh, says is he bothering bothering you you, and that is a beautiful construction as well because that journey is explored across Mm -hmm. Mad Men as well uh, in American consumerism and um, but he starts with he's trying to get to Lucky Strike and then he can't do it uh, and it starts out and it finishes with my one of my favourite all-time ads, if I wasn't saying laundrette, which is, I'd like to teach the world to sing. Mm. Uh, which, again, is something which captures something more than any... You know, it's not just an ad. It's weird that this bizarre object, an ad, which is so trivial and so stupid... Again, people will remember. I'd like to teach the world. It's remembered now, it's like, thirty it's like years later. Culture of it's not played out. It's not played out. It's mm. not been on TV for mm. you know. Most people didn't see it live. Most people, but somehow people know. I'd like to teach the world to sing, and and that transition from where he gets to and uh, where he gets to as an answer on Lucky Strike through to I'd like to teach the world to sing is is a kind of encapsulation of the narrative arc of consumerism and and advertising at the forefront of consumerism. So the first answer is he goes back to the truth. Yeah. Um, and if you remember, there's a very interesting bit. <laughs> Sorry, for an ad man, it's interesting. Um, somebody is trying to find the answer, and some psychologist comes in, or pseudo-psychologist, some she's severe woman. German professor. Yes, and, she's a, and, and, and it was the birth of the use of psychology yeah. Yeah. in advertising around the 50s in America, and there's a chap called Ernst Dichter who went over, who was Austrian. So he pretended that he knew Freud and that he had he was really good on the psychological understanding of why people did things, to go back to that question. Uh, the truth is he wasn't a psychologist at all and he lived in the street next to Freud or something. <laughs> but he was Austrian, so it sounded yes, good yeah. kind of thing. Uh, anyway, that swept American advertising, that use of psych- psychological yes. insight. And he suggests, she suggests, as it were, a kind of proto-planner there, suggesting that the reason we smoke uh, is because we want to kill ourselves. Uh, of course it is, because we know they kill us in... And uh, he kind of goes, at that stage, goes, thank you very much, and then takes a research report, which is massively thick, just to say people are weird, they want to kill themselves, that's why they smoke. They want to flirt with death 
because death is it. Yeah. Life and death is it. And he goes, whatever. He's kind of nascent. Uh, uh, he's not really got there yet. And he just puts it in the bin. Yes. And in the meeting, when, when Don is thinking, I haven't got an answer, I haven't got an answer, I haven't got an answer, I'm in the meeting, I haven't got an answer, which I, I recognise. <laughs> and... Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Campbell, the answer I've Campbell got is so, is so pathetic, you know, why am I bothering? I'm trying to do a cocad or lodger, I've got this answer and it's not good enough, you know, but the meeting was now, so I've got to present it and things. And uh, you can see him, and they're waiting for him, and uh, Pete, who is a kind of, again, proto-planner, but in a kind of nasty kind of way, abuse of knowledge, uh, kind of jumps in and starts talking about this research report. And he's obviously stolen it out of the rubbish bin mm -hmm. and has decided this is his moment for glory. And he's going to, to, to John Bartle's point, I want to be famous for ideas, not for planning. He thinks this is his moment yeah. to be famous. Anyway, yeah, at that moment, Don says, uh, and they all look at him, the client looks at him when he's talking about flirting with death, and they go, why don't they're southern gentlemen, not gentlemen, actually. And because again, about the race thing is there, and um, they look at him and go, What is he talking about? you know, and, and they quickly shut Pete up. And then Don goes, It's not that, it's not about that, it's not about death. What, how is Lucky Strike made? You know, well, we take the finest tobacco and then we toast it, that's it, it's toasted, <laughs> and it's a moment of just grab the truth and own it, which is a form of, of advertising as well. It doesn't have to be different from everybody yeah. else. Uh, and then right at the other end, if you think about it, Coke is his own discovery of a different why do people do things and almost an acceptance that there are deep emotional reasons why people do things, even sipping a Coke. Mm. And Coke is about our desire for happiness in the world, which mm -hmm. is a major human need, yeah. uh, alongside flirting with death. And, and in a way, the whole thing is about death. It's about consumerism as an antidote to death. And so that's why Coke is the last ad, and it finishes with it. And it's Don's moment. Nobody knows whether he wrote, went back and wrote the ad. But it is the moment when he sees his antennae are up, and he suddenly understands uh, he has a he has an idea mm -hmm. kind of thing about how he can use uh -huh. the that, That's a fascinating analysis of of. I could go on, but I know <laughs> I talk too much, which is another. No, it's amazing though. But outside of work, do you when you meet people or you go to the pub or you go out for yeah. me or whatever? It seems like the lens that you look through the world, or you look at the world through. Just adds this amazing layer of colour that most people probably don't see. Oh, well, I, I, Do you ever switch I, that I, off? I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't want to say that. People are amazing. But um, people bring all their backstories to everything, whatever they are. I, um, no, I, I suppose the truth is somewhere... There's a little boy going, why are people like this? So the book reading, maybe in talking to you, I realise is still fundamental. Though I stopped reading books, um, except thrillers, because I don't, I don't think I, uh, people will. You know, my wife says it's such a stupid glib comment, but I, I'm not sure I've read a book that truly understands people for a long time. Well, I haven't because I stopped reading it. But I, I find, you know, I read, you know, like I tried again with Remains of the Day, for example, and I go, what a load of nonsense. It's such an old story. Hmm. You know, why has that won a prize? You know, so James Joyce in 19 something does this book that breaks and shatters everything and sets up a whole new way of exploring ourselves. And. Then we're giving, I mean, it was a proper prize, wasn't it? I can't remember which one. And about this old story about how servants regret the past and he didn't do anything because 
He was so busy serving his master. I mean, God's sake, the world is kind of more complex than that. And there's more stories than that in the world today. Did you decide to stop reading books? Yes. Did you just drift out of it? I, 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 I decided. I, I just found them irritating. Uh, it, uh, it sounds slightly stupid. It is slightly stupid. Maybe I just got lazy and I'm just post-rationalising. But... Um, and I got busy, and it's quite hard to read properly if you're on a plane all the time and things. It's, you can't concentrate. But um, you can't hoover up a book in the same way because it's sporadic. So thrillers are best for that because <laughs> you don't have to remember what happened or anything. So uh, I, if you read some of the greats, as it were, James Joyce, Henry James, people are, well, I consider great Shakespeare... <laughs> They all get to one conclusion, which is they try to describe the world and people, and they couldn't. Do you think music does that? Or, or, or to reframe the question, how do you approach music? Well, how do you think about uh, music? maybe it's why I like short forms, in a, in a way. You, you can't... The trouble with a novel is it tries to create a story. It has to. It has to have a beginning and end. It has to fill 300 pages or 600 pages. It has to have a narrative arc, and it has to have characters, and it has to make sense, and it has to finish. And, and that's why all those people eventually they play a trip where they go, well, it's a finish, but it's not finished. Jane Austen, who I love as well, used to love, always does this thing where she goes, and they lived happily ever after. <laughs> And, of course, she knows they don't. Mm -hmm. Anybody who reads Jane Austen knows she knows mm. that the world does not live happily they, ever they after. somewhere so else the novel. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um, so that, the, the trouble with that form is it tries to do that. And, in a way, a book should s start somewhere in the middle because that's what life does with, with no reason why it started and finish somewhere with no reason. Like Sopranos, I think it just finishes and you have no idea. Uh, music, on the other hand, doesn't try and capture the whole story and the complexity of people and their interactions. It just tries to capture an emotional truth. And so in that sense, you can be more successful. Shakespeare gets there with... I went to see Winter's Tale the other day with Judy Dench. And, you know, it is a definite shift to the tempest and winter's tale and you can almost go i actually said sometimes i wonder whether he wrote that because it's clumsy almost but what he's trying to capture is theater as a, as a moment not as a story of motives music has that ability i think and so it, in a way i think music gets closer to some truths uh, i mean it's, it fails in other things doesn't it, it doesn't understand complexity particularly or anything but, well maybe some music it does but uh, I, I think be, uh, and maybe that's why I satisfied myself with ads because you can't capture it so an ad at least catches a moment of truth somewhere mm. I'd like to teach the world to sing mm. I'd like to buy the world a coke that's a truth that is <coughs> but of course, almost, uh, it's God is a shout in the street mm. I'd like to teach the world to sing I'd like to buy the world a coke that's a god is a shout in the street. It's, a, it's an expression of humanity of wanting to make my best friend in the summer's day happy by going to the vending machine and buying them a Coke or mm. buying somebody, you know, Google made it, buying somebody in another continent a Coke and, and trying to bring it alive. But do you see what I mean? It, mm. And it's just an emotional truth. And, of course, it falls apart under examination. Of course it does. But uh, there is truth in that human motive. Sorry, that sounds a bit deep, doesn't it? But, that's, that's uh, nice. To change gear just a, a little yeah. bit, though, Jack and I were discussing before you came in how, in the era, a lot of the era that you've talked about, you know, you would have print, radio, TV, fairly linear ways of reaching audiences and telling those stories. Yeah. In a world of dark channels yeah, yeah. like Snapchat and yeah, you yeah. Know, instant messaging. Yeah. How, how how do you view that? How impactful has that been, and how do you, how do you work around that or work with that? It, it, it's massively impactful for good or for bad. I think so. You, you, you know, I, I think in a way, each new media creates a new form. 
a new possibility. And um, so TV created an era of emotional storytelling. Um, print created before it an era of USPs, you know, almost selling off the page kind of thing. And rational argument almost. Uh, salesman in print was how advertising was described in 1890 or something. The cheapest or the best. Or the yeah, biggest, so you or... get to, you know, I, I can't visit you all, but I can do this print ad. Um, and that's where concepts of unique selling propositions and, and things. But but advertising is salesmanship in print. Uh, what what has happened? Uh, I mean, well, first of all, I think the way people behave or interact with something and engage with something, I think it. I think we should remember that that doesn't change, probably. Um, and sometimes I think we're in a stage where we're trying to understand what it gives us and what it offers us, and yet, so we're we're talking about the shock of the new and the triumph of that new and sometimes we forget some basic truths um, of the power of emotion as a basic truth um, or the power of fame for something like a coke ad or laundrette when everybody sees something at the same time and kind of talks about it in the morning uh, what it obviously does offer is some kind of interaction and um, and some kind of ability for me to respond the, the idea that people were passive is nonsense they were they were never passive uh if they didn't like it they didn't notice it they had the ultimate edit button and interaction capability which is that's rubbish mm. or i'll just not notice it that's the simplest thing human mind does with things that are boring and stupid and uh but they now have the chance to let us know what they're thinking and i think that creates an opportunity for some kind of interaction and two-way and participation. I, I think the deepest, and you can think about that executionally and how can an ad work and how, you know, things like the bucket challenge, I can pass it on to my friends as well. That's another massive opportunity, something I like. Uh, or I can get involved. It, it, these are amazing things. Um, and I like that. I think that creates new forms. The, the other thing probably goes deeper than execution though which is i think brands in that context are changing as well or how brands interact with people and i think a 21st century brand has to recognize that power of, of people at the center of it their power to know about you through the internet or, or through the internet is just an extraordinary wonderful thing and and they, they can find out. They can always find out the the age of transparency. They can always uh, kind of voice their opinion about you and pass it on to other people and their friends and family. They can always find out and ask people uh, about things. You know. So now I think word of mouth has always been important and the most critical uh, factor in people's choices. Um, but now you can really make it happen. So in that context, I think brands actually have to recognise the power of people and almost build themselves much more around the people rather than around themselves. They have to. I think the best brands are becoming things that recognise how to create value within their community of people, their audience. I think rather than calling them a consumer or calling them an audience that watches something, I think it's much better to think of them as a community of people who are involved with you and you are the person that facilitates and orchestrates and helps lead that community, but the community is it. Yeah, I the music I, industry has yeah. had... has almost been at an advantage in that sense because we've always had fans... You know, never really thought about consumers. I mean, I suppose somewhere. Yes, in the yes, distance. your word but is the fans. The relationship yeah, yeah. is between mm -hmm. artist and fan. Yeah, really. But the, the point remains. I mean, I was I was asked to speak at an away day here um, earlier this week, and one of the subjects I was asked to speak about was how do we build and own audiences or something like that. And I, I suppose the provocation following on from your sequence of thought is. 
well, maybe that's the wrong way of looking at that challenge. Maybe the challenge mm. is how do we better allow audiences to own us mm. in yes, some way? That's a nice way of putting it. Uh, you know, and yeah. Nick, you know, I love it when you talk about The Guardian, for example, as a, as, as a business and some of the stuff they've done as they've evolved from a transactor of newspapers that I might buy every morning to a proposition or idea or a brand that, that, that really harnesses a community of people in different ways and has opened up uh, to I, its readers. I, I think in, in, yeah, The Guardian is a, an interesting EG of uh, a brand adapting itself to a modern world and recognising its value is in its audience and in their connections and how they can help add value either in terms of knowledge or in terms of helping mobilize them behind something or in gathering them together just for great experiences mm. or add value. Mm -hmm. but uh you know all the media owners i think are recognizing because they're forced by pressure i'm not sure music is quite here yet uh obviously print is not a future business in the way it was uh, though there's some EGs of print recovering in some places mm. but but instead of thinking of yourself as a kind of uh, advertising business, I sell a space I sell a mm -hmm. page, I sell a half page or whatever and that's how I make money, I think the best ones are reaching out and recognising uh, as future business model their, their biggest competitive advantage that uh, is actually their relationship with their mm -hmm. their mm -hmm. users, their audience. And again, audience is a one-way concept uh, versus fans, or versus. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So their relationship with their users, the, their, their community mm -hmm. of Guardian, and that, of course, is much bigger than the amount of people that read a piece of print yeah. during a week. And they are almost open sourcing their audience is, is a way of thinking about it. And they're going, how do I add value? Well, I'll do lectures for them. You, you know, what I have is knowledge. Uh, I have great writers on particular subjects. I have knowledge over years. So I will actually open up that knowledge to that audience. So you get to lectures, you get to how they can help people have holiday, even to bring in them all the way in. And allowing them to be journalists. I mean, they're great <coughs> understanding. You know, the Three Little Pigs ads kind of brought it to life, come back to advertising. Mm. You know, this is the era of open journalism. Everyone's a journalist. You know, I look at Sky News now and, you know, the Paris riots. Most of that was actually first reported by mobile phones, yeah. wasn't it? Mm -hmm. and, and The Guardian, I think, was one of the first to recognise that shift of centre of power. It's not that they don't... They, they know they're good journalists and they're confident enough as good journalists to recognise there's a role of people journalism and at the centre of their new open mode is to allow those journalists in. And I think they charge them for, uh, you know, accessing yeah. their audience and accessing their editing skills and things. So you can become a Guardian journalist for 50 quid or something. I mm. can't remember what, what it is. And... As a, as a subscribed journalist, open journalist mm. for The Guardian, you can submit articles and they will decide whether they're good enough to be shared with the rest of your fellow uh, Guardian users. So um, I, th I think brands are shifting fundamentally is the first question. And, and going from just trust marks or just status markers or just emotions that help me feel... Yeah better to something more profound again all those things will still hold true uh, but they become communities of interest yeah. I think if you think of it that way and I think music does in a way have an advantage on that because music, bands, people have fans I, I don't think they understand what it means beyond fans I think they have quite a clumsy concept of how to use their fans. Uh, well, some groups don't. Some groups are brilliant. But I'm not sure the music companies know how to do it. Um, send them a photo with a false signature. You know, is the old way you manage a fan base. 
I think it has to be much more active, much more involved, much more transparent kind of thing. Well, I think something that's really changed, shift there, that I suppose technology has allowed is that that relationship can be direct between the artist and, yes, and their uh, fans now. Yes, so your threat is actually... I need to be better at doing that than Arctic Monkeys, don't I? Simple, yeah. simple challenge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's, I could yeah. do it. Why do I need you? And yeah. uh, I think, yeah. To such an extent that there's an argument that social media is fundamentally challenging, I suppose, what used to be the dominant ideology of what an artist was or could be. So in really clumsy terms, when popular music first started, the artist was like a, an unreachable god, someone yeah. different, someone special, someone different from me and from society who I couldn't reach. Probably the zenith of that is the, the, the Morrissey figure. It's a kind of Bi Byron as a pop star idea yeah. versus a world where, you know, to, to a lesser or greater extent, you're required to open up a direct conversation with a fan. You know, it completely disrupts the dynamic of stage or an audience or not or not do that byron byron had a fan club yeah. again go back to byron had a fan club byron was super <laughs> you know he was super cool he if mick jagger based himself on byron for fuck's sake you know i mean it had been done as a poet of his day as an artist of his day as a musician in words of his day he had a massive london fan club it had a fan club which spread across europe i mean mm. It's just that he could only manage it, and he still was on the pedestal. Mm. The trick, that, that's why I think it does disrupt and change. Mm. It changes, but the trick is to still preserve the joy people found in having a Byron as a massively magical figure and romantic figure, but still engage mm. in a way that is that intimate and authentic yeah, yeah, yeah. and whatever. And... I think that's the ultimate challenge. Is not going. Oh, all, all, you know. We have if to be. Picasso was alive today. I'd be able to go. Yeah. Oh, what a stupid drawing, Picasso! Don't you like know. his socks. Don't like your yeah. socks. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I don't think that's quite the way. But mm. um, I think it's hard to present. I mean, I, I personally think the E.G. I like is, is Obama. I, I think it's fascinating to watch Obama, and it's got almost a cliche again, but. It's not by chance he was a community leader and started as community leader. And it's not by chance he brings a way of getting to yeah. decisions, therefore, that at first is criticised as not leadery yeah. enough. And what they mean, not a 20th century leader or supposed leader who goes, we're going over there without consulting. He's very clever in the way he uses experts. Yeah. He's very clever in the way he uses mm -hmm. people to, to give him contrary views. And he takes... A, and then... He pushed it, but nobody could say that he doesn't have a clear point of view. Yeah, it's interesting. He's still a they leader, tried still to, special. the Republicans, He's but open. it's not true, you mm. know. It's very he, interesting. Uh, yes. Okay. Do you want to ask any final questions? Or I mean, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, mine's slightly blown um, and definitely fits the bill of interesting people. So thanks, Nick. But it's really struck me that you, it seems that you are a real studier of people. So this might be an impossible question, but is there one kind of fundamental truth that has remained about people through all the changes that you've seen in your time in the advertising industry? And did you ever get to answer that question that you asked yourself as a, as a teenage reader, you know, what are, what are people about? <laughs> uh, God... I think people are at their best uh, when they're true to themselves and honest. Uh, uh, they're at their worst when they worry about other people and get distracted. There's, uh, I think it's Tony Morrison who reminds, uh, again, go back to that race issue. She talks a lot about race. That a lot of what black people have to remind themselves is not to get distracted by people, you know, by people 
being racist kind of thing. But all the things, they have to remember what they want and make their own dreams come true and not get distracted, she says. And I think that's a big challenge in life, is how to be true to yourself as the ultimate truth, uh, including knowing you talk too much or something. <laughs> <laughs> that's no, it makes for a good or you're not, yeah. Or you're not, you know, touched by genius in terms of execution and things. So you just have to know because, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a fitting br- note to end brilliantly on. profound. Nick, thank you, thank you so, so much. much. Okay, that was a fascinating hour or so in the company of Nick Kendall. I feel like I've actually grown brain cells live during the podcast, so thank you to him for that. Um, If you're curious to hear more from us at Interesting Peoples... Please, Paul. Yes, you can find us online at www.interestingpeoples.com and uh, on Twitter at at ipeoplespodcast. So please connect with us there. The very most nicest, loveliest, friendliest thing that you could do, should you feel moved to do so, is to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us a nice review. That will help us immensely. Thank you. See you soon. Bye.